Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Anthro to UX. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Anthony Shenuda. Anthony is a senior UX researcher at HubSpot. He was previously at REI, where he did CX research, and then later uh, after that at Answer Lab, where he did user UX research again. And we'll talk a little bit about all those experiences, you know, the transition from CX to, you know, UX and maybe between Answer Lab, which is an agency and HubSpot, which is a product company. But before we get there, um, Anthony, would you mind kind of telling everybody how you came into anthropology? No, I don't mind at all. Thank you, Matt. And thanks for, for uh, asking me to do this. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you about this. Um, so I came into anthropology sort of the way I come into many things, which is somewhat accidentally, I suppose. Um, I, as an undergraduate at Oregon State University, I was studying geography, although I had a, a keen interest in people, but it was a very like physically oriented department. So it was more, you know, geomorphology, cartography, these sorts of things. And I hadn't heard about anthropology or known anything about it um, at that time. Uh, but I ended up taking a philosophy course that was about the what's often referred to as the, the Neo-Zapatista movement in Mexico. This is a sort of indigenous uprising in um, the early 1990s. And I really fell in love with that, just reading the communiques of, of this um, group of people and so on. And, um, and I just realized, like, one, I really wanted to work in Latin America, Mexico in particular. And two, I was definitely interested in people and what people are up to. Um, so I went on to do a master's degree in Latin American studies, and that's where I was introduced to anthropology more formally. Um, and in fact, I mean, it's, it's very clear in my own mind what got me into anthropology, and that was reading a book by um, Professor Ana Maria Alonso at the University of Arizona, which is where I did that master's uh, degree called Thread of Blood, which was a historical anthropology on the Mexican Revolution. Um, and I absolutely love the theory part of it, the ethnographic part of it, the historical part of it. And of course, since Anna was teaching there, I was able to meet her. I started taking classes with her and that was it. That sealed the deal for me. Um, so just being in the presence of someone who to this day, I, I consider just absolutely brilliant um, and reading all of this difficult theoretical complex literature. I don't know. I, I just got a real joy out of it. Um, and, and, and the ethnographic stuff, but I, I will admit, I love the, the theory stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's really what got me interested in, in anthropology. Yeah. That's cool. And so 
Then um, tell us how you got from anthropology essentially to you know CX at REI. That's you know quite the transition <laughs> from from your interest there. It is, and it's a much longer story. Um, but the short of it, um, as short as one can make this, is that I went on to get a PhD in anthropology. So I, I went um, uh, to Harvard University for that. Uh, and it was a joint PhD, anthropology and Middle Eastern studies. So I'd shifted my focus from Latin America to the Middle East, um, largely because I, 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 um, of, I am of Egyptian origin. I was very interested in the, the Coptic uh, Egyptian church uh, and miracle narratives in, in, within that community. So I, I began to study those sorts of things um, for the PhD. Um, and then I, I graduated in 2010, taught for a few years, and then just found myself, I guess, somewhat disillusioned with the academy. Um, and, and so I left. And when I left, I didn't go directly into UX. At this point in my life, I hadn't heard of UX. I had no idea what this was. Um, I was actually ordained to the priesthood in the Coptic church. Um, so again, that was the subject of my research, but um, also I consider myself a member of that community. And so I was ordained the priesthood in the Coptic church and, and served for three years, two of which I had uh, uh, my own parish, so to speak, in, uh, uh, in San Diego, California. Uh, and then... Around 2016, my wife and I decided that we really wanted to be part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is the Greek, Russian, like the whole Eastern Europe block of churches. So they're not in communion with the Egyptian church. And so making that transition meant that my priesthood wasn't recognized. Um, but what it also meant is that I suddenly was jobless. Um, and so here I was trying to figure out what my next move would be. Uh, and that's what led me to REI, not CX per se, but just as I was applying for jobs and trying to figure out how to somehow market myself and all of this, I, I, um, I took a part-time job at REI as an outdoor enthusiast. I figured it would at least keep me busy, pay a few bills and just, um, you know, give me something to do until I figured out, um, you know, found something a little more substantive. So, uh, so I, w I was working at REI at a store, like sort of at the retail level when this young woman walks in one day, she sets up a table and she's got iPads on there and donuts and coffee. And as people are walking out of the the store, she would stop them and talk to them. And some of them would sit at the table and do something on the iPad. You know, I was just watching this from a distance, um, you know, have a bit of coffee and a donut and so on. Um, so my, of course, curiosity got the best of me. So I said, Hey, who are you? What are you doing? And she said she worked for customer experience at REI headquarters. And we got to chatting and um, I told her who I was and my background, and she said, oh, you know, you'd, you'd probably be pretty good at this stuff, like CX, UX work, because you have this background in anthropology. So she planted that seed, and maybe, gosh, probably not for another year and a half or two years did I, like, revisit that and really start thinking about it um, mm -hmm. uh, in, And in the meantime, she connected me with her manager, who... Um, 
uh, we hit it off really well. He has a, a, a degree in Near Eastern languages and civilization. So we shared that Middle East, Near East um, connection. And eventually he would ask me to, to help with some of their um, projects. So that's how I ended up doing some customer experience work for REI before transitioning a little more fully and in a more grounded way in, in UX research. Um, so I'm happy to talk about the details of some of that work, but I'll, but that's sort of the, the, the arc of making my way from anthropology to, um, to CX UX research. Yeah, it's an interesting story. You're certainly the first person on the podcast, I think, that came from the priesthood. Uh, I would think so. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's a new transition for the for the podcast, for sure. Um, so out of curiosity, so when you're in your CX role, did you touch software at all? You know, was that a part of the journey that you were looking at or? Yeah, so it was. So, you know, REI, for anybody who's not familiar, is is really like a brick and mortar store. Like it, that's a very important part of, of, how should I put it, sort of the REI brand and identity. So, of course, there's an online presence and you can buy all sorts of things through their website. But the store experience is really critical of having people walk into the space see the, the various products available, touch them, try them on right. if they're, you know, clothing or backpacks or whatever. And have climb somebody with, it, climb the wall, exactly. Um, and somebody with some experience to, to sort of guide you through all of that. So it's a really critical piece of, of um, like I said, of, of, of the REI kind of experience and identity mm-hmm. and, and brand. Um, so, most of the CX work I did for REI was in store with people. And in particular, I worked on a project that was related to um, uh, a program that they'd launched not too long before I started doing the research on this. And it, it was basically like a personal outfitter program that somebody could make an appointment, go into the store and have one hour to two hours of just one-on-one time with um, an REI employee to get outfitted for a trip that they were going to take. Um, so there was no like software, anything involved with that, frankly. Um, I did work a little bit on, on um, the, one of the, the software products that REI employees use, like to track what's in stock and the prices and colors of things and so on. Like it's a handheld device that people can, can access and when they're working with a customer. Um, uh, and so I did a tiny bit of work on that of basically what the pain points were for employees using, um, uh, using this device. But that was, that was it with software stuff. Got it. So there's a few interesting things in there. I mean, one, you're in context essentially, right? Which is, Interesting, because then when you went to Answer Lab, I presume you were fully remote, right? I think everybody's fully remote. Yeah, I mean, it was fully remote. Um, I mean, there was in-person interviewing that happened. Um, so I did that pretty regularly, um, but lots of remote research. And then, you know, shortly, maybe a year into my time at Answer Lab, the pandemic hit, and then everything was, was 100% remote so. at that point. So still, though, interesting because, you know, the, the REI experience is very much in context, whereas a lot of our work today is remote, not 
not just because of the pandemic, but also um, interesting in that you didn't have, you know, that you didn't touch too much of software within the overall kind of, you know, customer journey, if you will. Um, so then what made you really want to work, you know, particularly in the software space versus maybe staying in CX or going into service design or something, you know, a little well, bit? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I can't say that it was, there was anything in particular. It was just a matter of circumstance. So the CX work I was doing with REI wasn't full time. It wasn't, um, it wasn't permanent in any I mean, is anything permanent, but as, as permanent as, as, as a job could be, it wasn't. Um, you know, it was just sort of these sort of, how do I say, one-off kinds of uh, projects that, that I was being asked to help with. Um, and so I was applying at that point for um, UX jobs all over the place just to see if I could get a more permanent full-time position doing this work. Um and I mean, to make a long story short, Answer Lab worked out. I mean, it, it ended up being um, the place that I that I went to. But it wasn't about I'd like to try software out or um, social media or anything like that. It was again a matter of, of circumstance. So, you know, having a PhD, you obviously had many years to to uh, you know practice your craft. And obviously, you got to bring that into the experience. But when going to Answer Lab, you you know, per our conversation, you didn't have that much software experience. So, can you talk about the challenges around making that transition? You know, did you have to learn? You know, you have to upskill, or you know, what what was new to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. And everything was new to me. I mean, except talking to people. Like that was the only piece of the work that wasn't new to me. I knew how to do that, um, but everything else was so. You know, let's back up a little bit so that I could sort of lead into this in a way that makes sense. Training in the discipline of anthropology, as I'm sure you know, um, and many listeners will know this, but especially at a department that is one of the top or considered one of the top anthropology departments in the world, is a training that is really geared towards making people academics right that's what trying to, to do and to be um, to enter into the business world or anything outside of academia that's not even a thought like it, it rarely crosses people's minds um, if at all and it's certainly not part of training or you know you're never presented with here are all your options as a PhD in anthropology like that doesn't happen it may happen at some departments, but definitely not at a place like Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, and so the other piece to that is that it's anthropology training is very anti-capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not criticizing that. I think that that is perfectly fine and, and important and legitimate. But, but part of that, of course, makes one feel like, entering into the business world is selling out. And I, I, I remember feeling that way about people that I'd heard of who had gone into the business world, but mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're selling out, like you're giving up on this, this ideal that we hold and you're, you've just completely sold yourself to this beast. Um, so that the combination of those things is such that coming, leaving academia and coming into an industry of sorts 
that is very much business oriented, very much beholden to capitalism. I didn't know anything, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's why I didn't know anything about this stuff because I'd never thought about it or been trained to think about it. Um, and so I found I actually part of that, the journey was I did end up taking a, uh, um, one of these so-called boot camp courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this particular one was in three parts. So, you know, let's think of it as a preface, sort of the main book, if you will, and then an epilogue. I finished the preface part of it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to apply for jobs. Like I, I'm sick of doing this coursework. I really just want to get a job. Um, and I did, and through various connections, managed to get interviews and then um, landed the job at Answer Lab. Um, but I will say that doing at least that preparatory part of the course um, helped me learn some of the language. And I think this mm-hmm. is the thing that even until now, I, I probably struggle with the most is to learn to speak UX. So I see it as, a, as, as learning a new culture, really, and language is such a a, a key part of it. So that has been, that has been the biggest part of the, the learning curve for me is just understanding the environment, the culture of um, the, how do I put it, the business, if you will, and the practice of, of UX. And so what were your biggest takeaways, you know, now sort of being able to reflect on that? I, as like, coming out of anthropology you're asking well well, about the culture of ux you know if if somebody else is trying to make this transition what do you think are maybe you know the top two three things that they should know about the ux culture well i think the language is key like actually learning what people mean when they use the word space for example um uh what the different methodologies are i mean some of them are familiar to to anthropologists but we we don't talk as anthropologists about foundational or generative research or strategic and evaluative research. Like those aren't words we use in the discipline. So um, just learn, but, but they're, they are methodological practices, right? And then realizing that the language used in anthropology, ethnography is used in UX, but in a totally different way, frankly. Um, So learning that, like really learning the language, right? It's like learning, it it might be the same language, but it's a slang. It's a different (laughs) or or just a different sort of, um, what's the right word? It's not coming to me, but a different sort of um, colloquial way of speaking about things. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, that seems key is just learning that because once you know how to speak to people, then you can have a conversation with them. But until you learn that, it's really hard to, to, to converse. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but it's hard. Um, so I think that's the probably the biggest takeaway. And then I, I guess one other takeaway is learning, <laughs> learning how to report in a business world. Um, and I know that you interviewed uh, Lisanne Norman recently, who's a very good friend of mine, um, and I remember she mentioned this when she spoke to you that, that the reporting piece is, is difficult when you come into this world from anthropology or even from academia more broadly, where you explain everything, you're accustomed to writing in prose and so on. Um, 
Uh, and so learning to write in bullet points is difficult, it turns out. It's like you mm-hmm. think it was easy, but it's not. Um, so I think that's another thing to really learn how to pull all of this complex stuff into these easy to digest, quick takeaway um, bullet point lists. I, I, and I think I still, to some extent, struggle with that, but I, I've gotten much better at it than I was at the beginning, that's for sure. Yeah, and of course, it's maybe worth pointing out that a uh, portion of that is also dependent on the audience, right? And sort of as you go up the organizational chart, there's obviously oftentimes less time you know, to, to spend on something very textual. Whereas with your team, you can, of course, have, you know, a little bit more of the conversations that maybe we're interested in. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. And, and those, but I think my experience anyways, has been that that happens in conversation, like you're saying, unless in a 20 page paper, right? Yeah, Which, yeah, I mean, sure. I could easily write, like I could easily <laughs> do that based on research I do, but, but I think, you know, even with a team like that comes out in, in, in a conversation or a set of meetings and less on a, on a sheet of paper. Yeah, that's a fair point. So aside from, you know, the language, what about the transition for you, you know, having been trained, you know, at Harvard, which obviously as you already alluded to, but is, you know, not applied at all. So you also then kind of bring with you, you know, and let me just preface also by saying, I know, you know, when we were, chatting just before we were recording, you said, you know, you're really interested in the theory end of everything, right? And um, interested in depth. And so, you know, any struggles there of sort of also wanting to bring in too much of that into the business environment? And you know, how did you learn to navigate that? Yeah, I, that's a, a wonderful question. I think that I, um, I think the struggle's always there because I can really nerd out about things that seem so nuanced and detailed that might not be super important for a, 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 the engineer I'm talking to or whatever, right? Um, so that I, I think the struggle is there, but I'm learning how to present what I'm thinking of as maybe more theoretical ways of thinking in, in ways that resonate and make sense to the audience I'm, I'm speaking with, right? So um, I think one of the things that I was trained to do as an anthropologist is to pay attention to nuance and to subtlety and these sorts of things. But once I, and I, I still try to do that in the research I'm doing, but once I'm presenting something to the, the larger team, I, I'm pretty conscious about what is presented and what isn't, right? That, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that I never even mentioned because it, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not going to matter for the way that the product is going to move forward. But then there are things that might be important to mention. So I remember you know, working with some folks at Instagram where there was a situation where I, I was interviewing people about advertisements on the platform and if they felt they were more inclined to click into ads that had lar- a larger number of likes. And inevitably, people said, no, that doesn't matter to me. It makes no difference. But the metrics show that the ads with more likes get more clicks. Um so I think what the team really wanted to reconcile this, how do we understand this discrepancy here? These people are telling you one thing, but the metrics are showing another. 
Um, and there are lots of ways to explain it, and I won't get into that. But one way to explain it is a cultural um, way of, of understanding it, which I did present. And that is that we live in a culture, I'm, I'm speaking about American culture here, that really highly prizes and privileges the individual. And so in doing so, it's as an American individual, you don't want to admit to being too heavily influenced by other people's thoughts and ideas and so on, even though I would argue that we very much are, mm-hmm. that at least the way to speak about th- these things is to say that you're not. Um, so, of course, the immediate reaction is, no, likes don't matter to me, right? I'm an independent thinking human being who is capable of deciding what I like and what I don't like and what I'm going to click on or not click on based on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I offered that explanation, right? And it helps. You know, I, where it drives the product is hard for me to say, but it certainly helps to understand why there's a discrepancy in what the numbers are showing and what sure. people are saying, right? So that's one simple example of where a, a kind of anthropological approach, I think, can, can be used. Sure. Now, you, you know, you mentioned Instagram. And so while, you know, while at Answer Lab, you worked on Facebook and Instagram, I believe, right? Both. And so, yeah. so those are, you know, big platforms to kind of get thrown into, especially sort of your first UX job and appreciating that, you know, it's like a portion of the platform. I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, right. you know, it's, it's some product, but small product, I'm sure of, you know, some sliver that you're working on at a time, but nonetheless, those are big platforms to get, to get put on. So, I mean, that in its own right is potentially, well, it's super interesting um, for lots of reasons, you know, it's size, scale, just sort of the reach of it, but also some of the sort of the ethical, you know, issues. For all those reasons, it's interesting, but it also may be a little intimidating to some. So did you have, you know, you have any like reservations about getting put on a project like that or anything that you learn from getting put on a platform like that? No, I can't, I don't, I can't say that I've found that intimidating. Um, and maybe I just didn't think about it, to be honest with you. Like, I just didn't think it's hard to like Facebook operates at such a scale that I think it's actually hard to process that. Right. I mean, what does it mean that it has that, that Facebook has whatever it is, 2 billion users worldwide or yeah, like what, what is that number really? Like it doesn't, it's huge. I know that much, but I don't really. I can't claim to have any real grasp of what that number actually means, right? Um, I just know that it's really, really big, and therefore these are products that have a huge impact in the world. Um, but I didn't find that in any way daunting or or um, frightening, or you know, they certainly didn't cause any sort of trepidation for me. And maybe it's because, as you mentioned, that the way you work on this stuff is, is just really within, with a very particular team or a couple of teams on one sliver of the whole thing, right? You're not somehow capturing all of it at once. So um, because it's so, it's, you, you sort of home in on very particular aspects of, of these products. Um, it doesn't feel that, that daunting because really you're just focused on, you know, how, uh, what's a, what's a good example? Like 
what ads are most appealing to people and why are they appealing and that kind of, so you're really focused on that one piece of, of this thing and, and not thinking about the rest of it very often. So now in that model, you know, it brings up a few things. I mean, first, because you're working on something that's so narrow, you know, you have, I mean, that, that narrow sliver, that, that little product could be, you know, could have high impact, right? If it's ads, I mean, there's, there's still pretty big impact there, but it's, anyway, it is narrow, but you're also at answer lab, you're in the agency model. So you're sort of, you know, presumably doing your research, sort of, you know, throwing it over the wall or reading it out, giving a readout, you know, presenting your insights, but sort of then throwing it over probably to the, you know, the team there to really run with it. Maybe, I don't know, you know maybe you see it again, maybe you don't, but that is, um, you know, not, you know, it sounds like the opportunity where, you know, you're just sort of moving from one to the next, like classic agency work. And so you might not to get, might not get to see the outcome of, you know, what you find or what you might recommend. Right. And so, you know, there's pros and cons with that. And in HubSpot, you're now in a product company where, you know, I don't know the size of the team there, but presumably, you know, obviously you're working on a product over a longer period of time. There might be more opportunity to work with, you know, other UX researchers on the product. So the dynamic is, is very, very different. Um, also, I guess in the world of Facebook, I mean, they have the internal team plus they're outsourcing and maybe they're even outsourcing to multiple partners. Right. And so there's maybe I'm going to assume and correct me if I'm wrong, but like probably like less cross pollination, less like sharing of research, less just sort of like, you know, global understanding of all of those findings. Whereas today you probably have that, you know, at least significantly more. And so, you know, can you talk about maybe like the different environments and, you know, what that looks like from one to the next and maybe what you like better? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, as you mentioned, with the the in in the the context of an agency, it is it is more of a situation where people come to you with particular bits of research that they'd like done. They have particular projects that they want um, some input on, um, and as a researcher, you try to understand as best you can what the product is, what it is that they want to learn, who they want to be talking to. You do all of that and then you present the findings to the team and the team could vary depending on where the product is in its development. You know, it could just be to another researcher in this case, for in my case, it would, would have been a, at Instagram, Facebook, um, or it could, if, if the product is further down the pipeline, then you're going to have product managers, engineers, designers all involved in these conversations. Um, and then, as you mentioned, it, you, it, you let go of it, right? Like they, they take it and they do whatever they're going to do with it. On occasion, I would be working more long-term with the same team, so I would get to see new iterations and continue mm-hmm to help with that research and in, in a couple of instances, even see the, the, the launch of a, of a product that I'd done research on. But I think that that isn't super common in, in um, the agency world. You know, it's more of, of, of a sort of plug and play model where you, you know, you sort of pop in, you do your thing, you, you, you pop out and go on to the next project. Uh, the in-house work of course is more, how do I say? I mean, there there are a lot more conversations that lead up to the research. So basically, all the conversations 
that the Facebook people were having before they came to me with the mm-hmm. research they wanted. I'm now part of those conversations at HubSpot. Um, and then there's doing the research, presenting it, and being a part of a team that is making decisions about what happens next. More research. Are we ready for launch? Do we want to prototype some things, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a much, um, how do I put it? It's a much fuller way of being involved in, in the life of a product. Um, uh, whereas with the agency model, not so much. So I think there are pros and cons to both. I find myself much more attracted to the in-house work just because I like the challenge of it. I like the, the depth that one gets and, and just endless conversations about um, product and product development and thinking about what research needs to be done and how it should be done and people with varying opinions. I, I, I love all of that. I actually thrive on that quite a bit. Um, but the advantage of the agency side is that you don't have to worry about that stuff, right? Like you, you really like, yes, your research will have an impact, but on some level, you don't have to worry a lot about what that impact will be and what it will look like because somebody else is taking that um, that burden on, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're taking your findings and they're doing whatever they do with it and, and you're not part of those conversations. So, um, yeah, I that's at least my take on it. I don't know if everybody would feel this way, but that's kind of my my view of it all. And in your experience, and again, this will differ between you know, agencies, but also employees hired by agencies, were you doing more, um, you know, evaluative type work on the platforms uh, or mostly evaluative or were you getting into any kind of more strategic or generative? Uh, it was a combination. I mean, I would say by and large, it's evaluative. So it's often designers are, have, you know, two or three different ideas and they want to get a feel for how people might respond to them and which one they prefer over the others and why and that sort of thing. Um, but there was some more foundational generative um, work. Like I did a project, for example, on how people think about commercial content on Instagram. Like, what does that mean to folks? Um, you know, that's very foundational. I mean, yeah. that that's like at the level of theory, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not at all evaluative kinds of research. So I did have a chance to do some of that. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think, yeah. Does that answer the, the question? Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious, you know, when you talk about you like depth, do you like depth in the sense that you want to be doing that kind of research or is it really just that you want to be able to dig into all aspects, including like, you know, everything about, you know, every every touch point, if you will, or every step in the way, even for evaluative type work. Yeah, uh, I'd say both. I mean, I definitely enjoy the foundational generative research and um, love doing that kind of work and, and, uh, um, and, and being deeply involved in that. Um, but I, I can totally nerd out even on usability stuff um, mm-hmm. because, because from my perspective, even usability, which is, all right, here's our, our platform. Can you do task A? Like, is that easy for you? Are you struggling? And what are the, the pain points or the struggles along the way? Um, 
there's a real human element to that. Um, and, and so for me, I'm just fascinated by that. Like, why is this a struggle? What is going on here? Um, and just thinking deeply about that. Um, so yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, that I, I like all of it, but I definitely gravitate more towards the foundational work for sure. And so now at HubSpot, um, you're, you know, you're leading research around machine learning, right? So, yeah, yeah that's right. Is that, um, I don't know how much you can, you know, talk about that in detail, but is that sort of more foundational? And, um, you know, because obviously there is, you know, that type of research now has big impact, right? Um, you know, what we choose to do in broadly the AI space, it's going to impact a lot of people. Um, and so there's a great opportunity there, but there also comes a great responsibility with that then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you, I, oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, please go on. Um, so I can't say much about it largely because I don't, I mean, I'm relatively new at HubSpot. So there's a lot I don't know yet. So there's yeah. that piece of it. And I think I can't say much because I don't want to say much about it. Um, uh, like any detailed stuff, but, mm-hmm. but you sure not, that's in, fine. In, in sort of more high level, um, uh, broader terms. I, so there's a combination of things. Like I, I, I work on stuff that is, that is, um, at the moment I'm doing like navigation research, for example. So how people navigate the HubSpot CRM and a redesign of that and so on. So that, um, you know, that still like really touches on more strategic kinds of, of research and that, um, the machine learning or AI piece of all of this, um, you're absolutely right that there is tremendous responsibility with that. And I, I'm actually really happy to be working on this because I think about these things a lot. And I, and I feel like I work with people who are very open to thinking about the various quandaries that might come up, right? I, I don't think that I'm working with people who would say, whatever, let's just ignore that, put it aside, bracket it, we don't need to worry about it. I, I, I think that, that there is a sincere desire to think about how and what are the machines learning, right? <laughs> like that, I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. And that's where all the ethical stuff comes out, I think, is, you know, how are, are these automated processes being trained? Um, and of course, I have a, a, a broad interest and a longstanding interest in questions around race, racism, systemically disempowered groups of people. And all of my anthropological research has dealt with, with groups that, that I think would fall into that category of being mm-hmm. systemically disempowered. So um, it's almost natural for me to think about these things. And I think I, I, as things unfold at HubSpot in my role, I'll be able to contribute to um, the m- machine learning piece of HubSpot in, I hope, significant and substantive ways and, and be thinking about some of these big questions and issues um, with a whole variety of people, with, with PMs and with designers and with other researchers and engineers so that we could 
can hopefully do it right or as right as we can get it, right? I mean, there are mistakes that people make without obviously intending to do so, but we should certainly be learning from other people's mistakes as well. So, you know, in there, you talked about, you know, sort of disempowered groups and and your interest. So I'd like to maybe get your take sort of, you know, even building on the last episode, um, you know, we're talking about inclusive design. So obviously, you know, it's something that you're for good reason seeing a lot of right now. The question is, is like everybody, you know, doing quite what they could be doing or is it somewhat paying lip service to it? But, you know, aside from, you know, recruiting, you know, more diverse sort of, you know, participants, you know, what do you think we can all be doing, especially maybe as it intersects with machine learning? Any thoughts on, you know, like kind of, you know, what you might try to do in that space? Well, I, I, I think we, we need to be thinking about the variety of, of users of whatever products we happen to be working on, right? Um, and what that means. So, you know, I was speaking with one of the designers I worked closely with the other day, and he mentioned you know, even thinking about navigation, if, if somebody like natively reads from right to left, for example, how does that impact the way they Im- interact with navigation on a page that's all in English um, or any other language where the reading goes from right, left to right? Um, you know, that seems so small and so subtle, but it's really an important way of understanding other humans and how they interact and engage with things. So, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to be working with folks who think about this mm-hmm. stuff, and I think that that's precisely it. That it's not, you know, one the rec- recruiting a diverse group of of participants in research is critical, but it's only critical if you're actually going to listen to them and take seriously where they're coming from. And and I can say that that I think in some instances that doesn't matter a lot for what one is trying to do, like, do you prefer the blue button or the red button or whatever, right? That's a dumb example. But, um, you know, sometimes that it's hard to really clearly show where that cultural difference is in, in these, in that sort of research. Um, uh, but there are times when it does matter, right? Um, you know, what sorts of businesses are people interested in supporting and why, and how does that, how, how are those presented to folks in a way that, that really resonate with them? And, you know, why are certain um, images more attractive to some people than others? And, you know, all of that, I think, is, is critical to, to, to take account of. And I think that that increasingly is becoming a part of machine learning, right? Um, uh, obviously, facial recognition software needs to to get up to speed with with this sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, again, I don't know the details of uh, exactly how I will be contributing to this at HubSpot, just because, again, I'm relatively new there. But um, but these are sort of vaguely and broadly speaking, some of the thoughts that linger in my own mind, and I think in some of my colleagues' minds. So we, we certainly want to be attentive to the subtlety of difference because I, I think it's 
especially with machine learning, that is, is going to make a, a world of difference. From your perspective, as somebody who's now come from an agency, you know, came from an agency and is now in a product company, be curious to know like what you would be looking at or what you would find interesting because you know in the agency model, there are certain skills that are beneficial, which I mean, you can make the argument that a lot of these skills might be beneficial in either environment, but there's like, you know, there's a different cadence, right? There's a, you know, there's just a, a sort of a different approach of sort of doing these quick research projects, selling it to, you know, to the client, sort of moving on almost to a degree where it's like, there's a little bit of like business development sort of in mind, you know, kind of involved in that. Whereas in the product, it's not to say that you're not, you don't have sort of stakeholders that you're sort of cultivating and everything else that are you know, engineering product, whatever it may be. Um, but it's it's a different role, and so I'd, I'm just I was gonna where I was gonna go with that was I was curious to get your input on like you know what you might be looking for in a resume and you sort of would it differ almost between those two environments? I I don't know if it would differ just because I'm a, a very strong proponent of diversifying the workforce wherever that happens to be. So I'm not sure. And by diversifying, I, I certainly mean sort of ethnic, racial identities, um, gender identity, so on, but also skill and where one is coming from. Because I think all of us, the, the, our backgrounds and, and our histories play a role in, in the present work that we're doing. Um, and that's part of part of a, a diversity of, of the workforce. Um, so I don't know that I would look for anything in particular at HubSpot that I wouldn't have wanted to see at Answer Lab, just because I, I think there's a value in having, you know, people who come from a whole variety of, of backgrounds. So, you know, the skill part to me is one piece of it. And frankly, it's a pretty small piece of it because there are plenty of people out in the world who have the skills to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's the stories people are coming with that are, that are valuable and important here. Um, you know, what are their experiences and their histories that can inform thinking about the design of a product and, and, and the way a product works and so on, uh, and even how to conduct research, how to talk to other people, right? I mean, we all have different ways of doing these things, which are, you know, maybe partly personality, but also partly just the way we have been raised to talk to other human beings, right? We have different ways of doing that. And the various cultures that we, that we are familiar with and comfortable with and so on. So I, yeah, I'm, uh, forgive me if that doesn't quite answer your question, but that's what comes to mind at the moment. <laughs> no, yeah, thanks. And, and so, you know, in there, you mentioned the word, you used the word stories and met uh, Bernie as he, you know, he was speaking, you know, in an earlier podcast about how he really wants to hear somebody's story. Basically, you know, he wants to you know, see that somebody can sell themselves. right? If you can sell your own story, then presumably you can sort of sell the, you know, the findings of the research which I thought was, you know, a good way to, to state it. And, but as, as you did point out, you know, everybody has a very different communication style. All right. And, um, you know, some people are maybe naturally better at sort of selling the research. And so, you know, the, the sort of readout that you would be doing, you know, at answer lab that you sort of had to learn on the fly, like the reporting of it, not, you know, earlier you talked about, you needed to learn how to sort of, you know, distill it down into bullet points. 
but also, you know, communicating it is, is really another skill. Um, and so I'd be curious to just get your input, you know, having presented to Instagram now in your new role, you know, I, um, what have you learned along the way, aside from sort of getting to that bulleted list about how you communicate your findings and how you tell the story? Uh, I, there are a couple of things to that. I, I think one is, is it's important to know who you're speaking with. Um, and, and even, you know, obviously at HubSpot, I know who I'm speaking with because these are my colleagues and they're people that I, that I have met at, at various stages of my time at the company and have gotten to know on some level. When I was working with teams at Facebook and Instagram, much less the case. I mean, very often I was seeing people for the very first time and meeting them for the very first time when I would present the research, but I would always ask whoever my point of contact was, who's going to be in the room? Who are they? What is their role? Who has power and who doesn't? Mm -hmm. These were important questions to me um, to know, to really have as much of a sense as I could of who I was presenting this to um, because that shifts the way I make the presentation. It shifts who I, I, um, you know, whose questions hold more weight than others. And that may be a crappy thing to say because it's so unegalitarian. But the reality is, is this is how these these organizations operate. So if I know that when this guy asks me a question, that like everybody's going to pay attention to that and listen to my answer because he asked the question, mm -hmm. but when this other dude asked, for whatever reason, people don't care as much. I need to know that. And it's not because I'm going to make sure I answer his question and not this other guy's question. Sorry that these are all male examples. Um, but at any rate, I'm, I, it's not, that's not the rationale, but it's because I, I'm trying to understand the dynamic that is sure. at work there. Um, and, yeah, I, I can say more about that, but I think I'll leave it at, at, at that. <laughs> you know, it's an I think the one thing I want to address is I, I, I think my take on Matt's approach with the storytelling is uh, that's a little too utilitarian for my liking. Like when I say I want to know a person's story, it's not because I want to know how they tell a story, but I want to know who they are. I just, I want to know their story, not how they tell a story. I, I'm less interested in the presentation part of things because we everybody has different ways of doing it. And if we're willing to pay attention and kind of listen to what a person is saying, then we're, we're going to, we're, we're going to learn, I think, what we need. And if we're willing to ask the questions, we'll get what we need out of the way they present. Um, uh, and, you know, some people are just more gifted storytellers than others. And I wouldn't want to sort of privilege that over someone who, say, is presenting in an English language speaking world, but English is their third language, right? Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's not not fair and not right to, to do that. And I'm not suggesting Matt was saying that. I highly, highly doubt it. Yeah, that. I doubt it as well. But, um, yeah. but I'm just saying like that. I've, I'm interested in the story because it's telling me about the person mm -hmm. and not because it's telling me how they tell a story, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no I, I hear you. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I agree that I doubt that that was ever Matt's intention, but it's, uh, 
you know, hearing you then sort of respond to it, it's an interesting nuance to maybe the way I explained it versus even how Matt explained it. But it's actually, I think, an interesting and important nuance to kind of point out. And there's, you know, value in both sort of perspectives there, right? And um, but keeping both in mind is is certainly interesting. And um, you know, certainly I hear you, especially if somebody was you know, non-native speaker, right? It obviously, makes perfect sense. But the um, the story, nonetheless you know, of their background, you know, can be very compelling, right? And, and and what led you into it? Like, you know, I found, you know, particularly your story is, is really interesting, just kind of coming through the CX space to this. And I mean, from the, like the priesthood, you know, leaving teaching and the priesthood, I mean, that's a compelling story in the end, right? It's a, it's one that I won't forget in, in terms of people I've spoke to so far with this podcast, but there's a, you know, there's a beyond uh, in there, beyond like the, the conversation around the story, one of the other things I was thinking as you were talking about you know, the, the different experience is something else that you have as a result of your experience from Answer Lab now to product is you know the difference between again sort of popping in and out, but maybe now also being involved in. Are you an embedded researcher? So are you in a product team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, you know, previous, you know, if you, if you were popping in and out, sort of parachuting in and out before, then, you know, versus being with a product team now, you have a whole different sort of team dynamic now, right? There's the engineers. So it goes back to your language concept of earlier, but now you get to be around all these other kind of key players the whole time, which is really interesting, right? It's a really good learning opportunity in its own right, yeah. not just to learn about technology, which of course it also contributes to your, you know, developing your understanding of technology, broadly speaking, but also, you know, the way that they think about the process of building product, you know, their input in it. And of course, if you get to sort of bring them along into the research, what that really looks like, you know, as you're working together on kind of, you know, on this sort of participatory research. So how has that been for you overall? I love it. I mean, that, that, that's the primary reason that I prefer doing in-house work over the agency work is it's precisely that sort of embeddedness, as, as you called it, that, that appeals to me. Um, because I, what it does is it allows, it allows me to understand what actually goes into the making of something, um, that, that there are so many players involved and so many, how do I put it? Um, I don't know, so like like restrictions and things that are like hemming all of this stuff in um, that I think are just really fascinating. Like I, one can be frustrated by this, right? Um, to to maybe make a recommendation and have an engineer say no, that doesn't make sense for X Y Z. I don't find that frustrating. Like I don't I don't think. How do I put this? I, I feel like what I have to say much of the time isn't so critical that everybody has to take it seriously and embrace it and accept it and do what I'm saying. I don't re- like maybe every once in a while I would really put my foot down on something, especially if it was related to sort of ethical, moral kinds of questions, mm-hmm. right? But aside from that, like, I'm pretty open to being challenged and to thinking differently and more deeply about what I'm presenting. Um, 
such that I think having that that variety of voices is really, really important, right? I mean, I I think it's critical to hear from an engineer that, hey, this sounds great, but this is impossible for us to build, right? <laughs> like you you need that kind of that 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 perspective. Right? Yeah. I mean, because the engineer isn't thinking about the sort of the bells and whistles of things or the aesthetics of things, but like the practicality of building the thing and allowing it to materialize. So I, I really enjoy learning that kind of thing. So I guess what I'm trying to say in short is that this, I see being embedded in a team of a variety of people as a learning experience. And it's also, and I hope my colleagues, if any of them actually listen to this, don't, take this the wrong way, but it's like, there's a sociological experiment going on here. It's an opportunity to study. A a bunch of different people with different backgrounds, with different um, areas of expertise coming together to try to make something happen. And it's, it's pretty remarkable that, that things do happen and things are created as a result of all of these differences coming together. Um, so I just find the whole process really interesting is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah. So I, maybe I should just leave it at that. And if you have any follow-up questions about it, I'll, I'll be happy to address them. Well, what I'd like to do is maybe pivot, you know, I, I, given your experience uh, and this sort of recent transition, you know, we've spent a lot of time just talking about the difference between agency and product, which I haven't really had the opportunity to spend so, as much time on previously. So somewhat staying on that thread, but like maybe pivoting to, you know, some sort of recommendations for anybody who's listening. I'd be curious to hear what you might recommend, like, you know, if somebody, you know, how would you steer somebody if, you know, if you were mentoring somebody uh, and they came to you, why might you tell them to go to an agency versus a product organization? I know we spent a lot of time on why you like a product organization and mm-hmm. you know, for those reasons, you might recommend to others, they do the same, but it, like for those who are listening and trying to decide, do I want to be an agency? Do I want to be product? You know, what, how might you help somebody figure that out? Yeah. So I, I think um, one of the biggest advantage, advantages of agency life is that, you potentially get exposed to a whole variety of industries and and projects. Now, I happen to work entirely in my agency experience and social media and and Instagram, Facebook, and that. Um, I think that is is relatively unique for the agency world. So my my specific personal experience, I think, doesn't translate, um, but the more common experience is that you're working maybe in social media, maybe in FinTech, you're doing automotive stuff, like lots of different possibilities with agency work, depending obviously on the agency and its clientele, but, but there's, there are, or that rather there is the opportunity, I think, to be exposed to a wide variety of industries. And the, the advantage of that is with that exposure, one, if one were to decide at some point in their career that they wanted to go in-house, maybe there's a specific area that or industry that they would really like to work in. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe somebody does automotive 
work and decides this is where I would really like to invest my time and build a career is just doing research within the automotive industry. I mean, that's cool. If that's something that you learn about yourself, why not? Or fintech or whatever. So um, that's definitely the advantage of agency life. And I think it's a, a special advantage when you're early on in your UX career, especially transitioning from a world where you may not have been exposed to these things. So um, that would be one reason I would, I would recommend agency work. But, you know, there's also the fact that we don't have a lot of control over these things. And you, you know, when you're looking for a job, you apply for a bunch of things and, and you may just end up taking whatever you get. And, sure and just dealing with it, right? So there's that very sort of practical world, yeah. element to all of this. Yeah, but if sure. you're in a position to really choose, then, then yeah, there are the, the one big advantage of agency work is that exposure to a variety of industries. And, and that, that may very well be worth pursuing um, if you want that exposure that you're, you're just not going to get if you go in-house. You, you simply won't. Or maybe... Maybe in rare circumstances you would, but I think in general, not not the case. Sure. Yeah. And seeing as you spent so much, you know, I know you said you did some in-person interviews, but since Answer Lab is you know, v- very much sort of a remote model, and of course now you're remote, you know, anything that you've learned through that experience that was just sort of very different than, you know, say your PhD research that you think is worth calling out, any whether it's tools or just, you know, ways of approaching that research, Anything that you found over the past, you know, 18 months that's particularly interesting? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, I certainly learned, I think, as much of the world learned, that you can get a hell of a lot done remotely. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've, we've become, I think, like, really, there's been a ton of ingenuity in, in terms of, of methodology and how to do things remotely. So there's there's a lot we can do remotely. Um, and, and I think that's great. And it gives people an opportunity to, in many instances, to live where they want, or maybe they just can't move from where they, they are, even if they want to, or whatever one's circumstances are. Um, and as companies open up to remote work, I, I think it also allows for a, a much wider diversity of, of employees. Um, and you can also attract incredible talent, right? I mean, you might have somebody in Atlanta who's just phenomenal, does not want to move. Family's there, a life is established there, kids are in school there, whatever. You know, if, if the remote option is there, then, then you might actually be able to get them. So there are lots of advantages. Having said that, I think the biggest disadvantage, in my opinion, is that human connection, which you can have virtually, but it's not the same. Sure. Um, you know, there's just sort of that, I don't know, that the, the, everything about a human being that is human in the flesh is missing in the virtual world. Like, I don't know how tall you are, for example, and you don't know how tall I am, right? Um, like, I, I just can't tell. Um, and, you know, there are those little things that may, like, on 
the one hand, you might think are utterly unimportant, but it's part of the way we relate to each other as human beings. Um, And to be able, you know, I remember doing in-person research where people would come into the office and I would meet them in the lobby and then walk with them to the room where we were going to do the interview. And just that walk was great because I, I, in that, the course of that walk, I'd learn all sorts of things about them. I'd tell them a bit about me. And then the walk back out was always important, right? I mean, this was, these were moments where I could talk to them about things that they mentioned in an interview that I couldn't say anything about in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, we could, we could, re- I totally related to and wanted to say something about okay. it, So I would do that on the walk out. Um, so I, I think, and, and I think there are ways like all the little quirky, subtle things about us as human beings come out more easily in the flesh. Um, you know, even using a prototype, you know, somebody picks up their phone and is doing something and, you know, just the way they're looking at it or, you know, the way they, they turn it and uh, you just can't get that, sure. that like material thing remotely. So, um, yeah, so I think all of that is is really important, and it becomes especially important if you actually want to do something more akin to ethnographic style research, where it, it's important to hang out with people and to be there when they're eating lunch and ask them why they're eating what they're eating, and because all of that is going to, in some way, tie back to the overall work atmosphere, which ties back directly into the actual work they're doing and the way they use your product. So I, I think the, yeah, I don't know if I'm over-exaggerating it, but I think that there is something to be missed about in-person work. And I, I would hope that I could do a ton of stuff remotely, but also have opportunities to, to hang out with people and get to know them on a different level that would, I think, impact the product development in, in a in a real way, I think. Yeah, yeah for Maybe sure. even in a substantive way, I would hope. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly some of our biggest aha moments were because of being in context. Totally, so, 100%. So, yeah, I know uh, a lot of us want to at least maintain some portion of remote work, you know, probably less because we want to do remote research and more we just want to have, you know, quality of life. But uh, you know, that's probably the non-research, or for, for many of us, I imagine that's the non-research portions of the role that we want to be remote, and then let yeah. you know, some of the research at least be be in person. But so, uh, you know, we'll wonder there, um, other than where should people find you, and is there anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet very much or do much on it, but I'm there, and if you if somebody were to send me a message, I would see it and read it and respond. And I'm on LinkedIn. That's it. Like no other social media, no nothing else. So um, don't bother with Facebook or Instagram. You won't find me there. Um, but but like I said, Twitter, LinkedIn, definitely. Um, those are good ways to get in touch. And either one is fine with me, frankly. Um, and always happy to, to be in touch with people. I will say... I, I don't think there's anything specific that I want to plug except to say that people who are coming into UX and are new, the absolute 
key thing to be doing is reaching out to people. Um, that's utterly critical and you have to do it. It's not even an option, I would say, for most of us. Like you have to be reaching out to folks and know that most people are super cool and will respond to you and will be willing to help you to the extent you're willing to be helped. So I, I, I think that's really, really critical. And, and having said that, anybody who reaches out to me, I, I will always respond to them and do what I can. Now, I'm afraid that I'm not always much of a help, but I will do it at whatever I can for folks. Very, very happy and delighted to do that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you're a great help. And, uh, you know, that just reiterates that the community, you know, just you, you hear it all the time, but it's a very welcoming community, right? And 100%, so, yeah. And people come from a whole variety of backgrounds. And, yeah, you know, I just met a colleague today and it was just incredible as each of us was sharing our stories with one another. Each of us was thinking, oh, I didn't know that. Cool. I totally relate to that. I had a very similar experience. And so, and it was just this back and forth of, yeah, I, I understand that. You know, he, he told me that he taught scuba diving for a while. And I said, oh, I have an advanced open water certification. Like, I mean, it just seemingly random things, but they really help for these human, create these human connections. And, and, and I think that is really one of the beautiful things about UX is that people are coming from all walks of life. So you're bound to find folks that you can really connect with and resonate with. And I think it also means that people are open to the, the, the sort of variety of life ways. And there isn't this sense that there's only one way to enter into this thing. And if you didn't graduate from X program and do this thing and this other thing, then you're not really worth talking to. I, I don't get that sense at all ever within the UX community. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a cool bunch, very open to experience, very, uh, very open to chat. So yeah, I, I would just reiterate to reach out to anybody that, you know, yourself, me, anybody who's been on the podcast before, anybody in general. So everybody's pretty cool. So Anthony, um, thanks again. I, I appreciate your time. And, um, you know, I uh, hope that in the future we can sync up somewhere in person. It seems like in the U.S. we're getting close to that. You know, uh, yeah. thankfully, I know a lot of the rest of the world is still struggling and can't forget that. But it seems like here we're finally getting closer to, to seeing everybody out again. So hopefully we can meet up in an event. Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the, your time and, and just having me on, on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.